Good morning. How are you guys doing? Turn to your neighbor and say, God is good. I'm being serious. <laughs> I told my wife I'd do that this morning because it's just so weird to do that. Um, like Doug said, my name is Wiseman. I work for Doug. No, I'm joking. I work for Jesus. Um, it's good to have you guys this morning. Um, I'm excited for the passage that we're about to get into. It's been a lot of work preparing it and really just thankful. Um, I'm going to pray again for myself, having introduced myself again. Um, we love to pray. Prayer is something that confesses that we are dependent, wholly dependent on the Lord. And so I'm going to read the passage and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in and hopefully I can speak louder than the wonderful noises that you're hearing us today. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. So we're back in the series of Mark. Mark chapter 12 from verse 35 to verse 40. So that's verse, from verse 35 to verse 40. So it's just five verses and I've got one page per, per verse per, this morning. So let's read together. It says, and Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Our Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, you alone are God. We thank you for your word and how it reminds us again that amidst all these other gods who cannot speak, who are mute, who cannot see, you alone stand supreme. These are the man-made gods are not God like you, but you, God, are a living God. I pray that you be with us this morning. Open the eyes of our heart to just behold you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Just as a way of introduction, I want to find how many of us here in the 8 a.m. service at Parkhurst watched the State of the Nation agenda? You watch the sermon, just lift your hand up. S someone here watches it. It's really interesting. Um, <coughs> I, was, I was just thinking about it this week because it's actually one of the analogies I'm going to use. And I thought to myself, I, I don't ever watch this thing. And one of the reasons I don't watch the State of the Nation is because I'm like, I just, I never feel like there's a direct, immediate impact that I'll get from watching, you know, our politicians get dressed and go to the Oscars, you know, well, it's not the Oscars, it's the state of the nation, 
They dress, they dress up like they're going to the Oscars. They look so fancy. The only impact, honestly, the state of the nation dress has on my life is that it messes with my YouTube algorithm. Like, whenever I go on YouTube and after the state of the nation address, I'm just flooded with all the news media stations and they're telling us all the highlights and you can just get them on a one infographic and it, it, it just bothers me. You know? I don't know how to do the whole YouTube algorithm stuff so that it prevents that, but that's, I mean, it's, it's just irritating. But I say that because, I mean, the state of the nation just has an impact on our lives, right? Stuff that our president says has an impact. It matters. Um, am I right? And so <clears throat> the reason why I'm even bringing it up is because when we think and we come to what's happening in this passage here, uh, we're going to realize that there are certain things that have been said that have established an entire generation of people, and they built an entire society on beliefs that are misconstrued. And so when we, let, let, let's come to the passage and, and before we really start reading into what's happening in the passage, I want to give us a bit of context in, what, in where we're at here. So we're back in the series of Mark. You know, I was very reticent to be the first one to come back to Mark because Doug has done such a great job preaching through all that stuff, right? And I thought to myself, man, I got to be here. But I'm glad I can do it because I'm about to have a baby. Isn't that cool? This is where you clap your hands, guys. I'm about to be a dad. Can you believe that? So I'm glad I get to preach before this guy's here. He doesn't have to hear me waffle. <laughs> um, anyway, so we back in the book of Mark, um, and the context here is that Jesus Christ has just come into Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem, and since he's been here, there's been confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. Uh, Jesus has been cursing trees because they don't have fruit. He's flipping tables. He's making whoops, and he's whooping everybody. You know? <coughs> And, and he's also been facing opposition. Like, all the stuff that he's been teaching has been, like, he's been scrutinized by all these religious leaders that he's been engaging with the whole time. And so they're busy asking him and challenging him all the stuff that, what are you doing? By what authority are you doing this? Who are you? But, like, is there a resurrection? There's all this confrontation that's been happening from chapter 11 all the way up to now. But at this passage, we kind of get a flip a little bit. Jesus has answered all their tests. He understood their assignment, and now he's come to them with his own assignment. And so when we read here that Jesus is in the temple, he says, how can the scribes say? He's gone and flipped the tables and started being the one to scrutinize them. And so before I get into what exactly he's saying, I think we need to understand who it is that he's talking to here, right? So the scribes, if you're taking notes, this point is called the scribes and us. And this is going to be important, and there's a reason why I'm calling it the scribes and us. And so the scribes here are a unique group of people. They were, like, responsible for regulating the laws of the day, particularly for Jewish people. They would interpret the Old Testament, they would teach the laws, and they would regulate how those laws are enforced. And they'd also add other laws, too. And so these guys, actually, a cool point is that these guys are part of the reason why we actually have the Old Testament today. That God and his sovereignty used these guys. I mean, they would copy and recopy the Old Testament down to the spaces, making copies and copies and copies. And that's how they actually did to study the Old Testament. That's how they knew all these laws. And God used them to preserve the Old Testament for us today. And so now, these guys are often always connected with 
a group that we might be more familiar with called the, scri- uh, the Pharisees. You always hear the scribes and then there's Pharisees. Now, these two aren't the same thing. And the, and the big difference is the Pharisees, they're like the political muscle of the day. You know, they're, like, you know, they're like the guys who actually go to the solar. And the scribes, they're like the brains behind the operation. It's kind of like pinky and the brain. You know, one's a genius and the others are insane. This is my excuse for a joke. Um, and so, <laughs> so this is important because it matters in light of what Jesus is doing here. Um, when we read, it's very easy for us to be like, oh, these are just the pastors of the day. No, these aren't, these aren't just ordinary pastors here. When Jesus goes into the temple, all the things that he's been doing, he's going right into the state of the nation at risk. He's confronting the who's who's of the day. He is literally publicly humiliating the leaders and exposing them. He's exposing them for their hypocrisies of their behavior and the teachings that, have stab- that they have established their own reputation. So this is a real big thing. So when you read that the, the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to destroy Jesus, this isn't, these aren't people that Jesus Christ has been calling out for driving expensive camels. These guys are the rulers of the day. Like, these guys are, I mean, I'm, I'm, rich, I'm rich as I can say, but like these guys are dangerous. You know, they're not making threats, the kind, of, the kind of threats that they're making because, you know, they're really safe, cuddly guys. And so in this passage, Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, and he is questioning them about what it is that they actually believe. And these guys are recognizing what Jesus is about to do. Unlike every other scribe or unlike every other rabbi who's come about, Jesus is not here to take part in what they're doing. He's here to take over. And these guys are not having it. And so when we read that and we see that, this is what I want us to feel and understand, that he's there and he's asking the question. And by the very, by the very like, audacity to ask the question, Jesus is challenging their credibility. How can the scribes say? This is history that is literally the foundation of their heritage. And so what does that mean for us before we actually get into the passage? In the same way that Jesus waltzes into the scene and he literally opposes what's happening in this society. And this time, it's very, it's very overt. It's not discreet like it's been in the first 10 chapters. He is becoming very overt in what he's doing. In the same way that Jesus is stepping into this realm, this is what the gospel does. So when you think about the gospel, I'm talking about the message here, the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel stands in opposition against any belief or faith expression that does not recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the uniqueness about the gospel. It doesn't come to take part with whatever is happening in the world. Whatever, whatever we are holding on to in our own hearts, the gospel doesn't want to take part in that. It's coming to take over. Whatever hard commitments that we have made, and that's the significance when we, when we see Jesus Christ opposing the scribe here. Now granted, we'll, and I'll get into it a little bit more, but when we see that, we ought to feel and sense that that's what the gospel message is all about for us. 
the message of the gospel does not want to stand with whatever idols or safe commitments that we make for ourselves. Money, marriage, that cute guy you want to invite to the board game, the message of the gospel wants to point us to Jesus Christ. And so the last time we were in the book of Mark, we learned that there's one God here or Israel. The Lord our God is one. There's no God like him. Central to the message of the gospel is exactly that. And Jesus Christ himself makes the bold claims and says, I am that guy. Throughout our series, we've been looking at the gospel of Mark. And those are the, those are the main key points that have been coming out. There's one God. Jesus Christ is here to reveal himself as the son of God. He's here to introduce something new. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, he says it, repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come. Jesus isn't, isn't interested in taking part. He's bringing something new. Jesus is here to take over. In the same way that he's opposing the scribes, that's the message of the gospel that he is bringing. And so what is he opposing exactly here in this passage? So now, let's finally get in to Mark uh, 35 to 40. And so he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And the question here is meant to throw them back all the way into the Old Testament, their knowledge of the Old Testament that is so extensive, that is so respected. I mean, from the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the scribes would have learned about this Messiah figure. And throughout our series, we've covered who this Messiah is and how Jesus Christ makes the claim. And so when he asks here, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? He's calling them. He says, hey, tap into your knowledge of the Old Testament and answer this question for us. This figure who's to come from the family of David. You guys know, remember David? The shepherd boy who became a warrior king. If you don't know who David is, I encourage you, go read uh, First and Second Samuel. It is hectic. It's better than days of our lives, I can tell you that. You know? So go read First and Second Samuel, and you can learn about this, this guy who was a shepherd boy and became the greatest king in Israel's history. He ushered in Israel's golden age, known as their greatest military warrior. This is the guy who the Old Testament promises that the Messiah of the Jews is coming. And this is what Jesus is actually questioning. The Jews have built and established their hope on this guy. You know, at the moment, I have to admit I was confessing to the guys that I'm I'm experiencing a bit of pregnancy fatigue. So my wife is 38 weeks pregnant. This is the first time I'm doing this. You know, and in the beginning, you're like, man, I want to be a good, loving, godly husband. You know, I'm going to love her, rub those feet, you know, cook, you know, wash dishes. Now I'm just like, are you sure you can't do it? <laughs> you know, like the expectation of this guy coming, like we're expecting a boy, by the way. So the expectation of this little boy coming was like really high, you know. But now I'm just like, man, I just want this guy to come, you know. And so it's kind of like dwindling here, you know. And I, I use that analogy because here, for the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish nation, there was this burning expectation that there is a Messiah born of a king of David. 
he was going to set them free from the, situ- the dark situation they're in. It's not like they're about to have a baby, but the hope is much bigger. Liberation. I think as a country, we've experienced a bit of that a little bit in our complex history, right? And so these guys are captured by the truths that are written in the Old Testament. Passages like 2 Samuel verse 7. If you're taking notes, it's 2 Samuel verse 7. Uh, oh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. Many numbers there. It says, when your time comes, this is God speaking now. He's speaking to David himself, this king. He says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You know, I, me and my wife have an app. We're tracking when our baby's coming, right? 38 weeks, 40 weeks, this is probably around the time he's coming. These guys, they had the Old Testament. They were packed with promises, lavish promises that they hoped, that they built their hope around. In Psalm 89, from verse 35 to 37, God says, Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. And he's talking about the promise he made here in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, verse 12. He says, his offspring will continue forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. These passages captured the imagination of the Jewish nation. They were like, yeah, we believe. They were hoping and believing that this Messiah, the future king, born of the line of David, was going to deliver them from their immediate oppression. Their expectation was burning. And these Pharisees and scribes enforced the law, beating down the law and calling people to live in obedience because when the Messiah comes, you want to be taken up by him. This is how they understood the Old Testament. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but this is also what they believed was going to get them the better seat, for lack of a better word. It was going to make them praise more by God. In short, one of the commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this was saying that the idea of the Messiah was a political and nationalistic dream of human deliverance. That was their concern. When they read the Old Testament, they were more concerned about, oh no, it's here and now. But then Jesus throws in a span in the works. Let's read verse 36 together. He says, David, the Messiah King, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110. Which was, well, this is like one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. And Jesus is adding the extra emphasis that the passage that we're reading, this Psalm, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, this he's saying, he's saying that in the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them, and it's good for us to also remember, he's reminding them that this that that we're reading, this is from God. 
This isn't just a poem or a song that David wrote. This is God inspiring David to write this. And, and Jesus is saying, notice what David, by the Holy Spirit, is saying about his son. The son that you're expecting, David is saying, that's his Lord. And the scribes, the guys he's talking to, the scribes, the people, the crowd, and when you read this in the different, in the other in, in the other accounts of Matthew and Luke, that there's like here, there's all kinds of people. He's in the temple. And these guys would have immediately recognized that this is also a prophecy. But it's a spanner in the works because they'd overlooked the idea that the Messiah is more than just the son of David. The Messiah is more than just the physical son of David. If David... If he is David's Lord, then this Messiah is greater than the greatest king who ever lived. And so the answer to question, uh, so the answer to the the question that we see in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The answer can only be that the Messiah is divine. And that's a crucial aspect that these guys have overlooked. They've given themselves, their soul, their nation. They've been filled with these nationalistic dreams. And they've overlooked the one key integral thing that the Gospels are always telling us. The Messiah is divine. The Messiah is Lord. In our series, we've spoken, again, in our series, we've spoken extensively of this. But I just want to read what Paul, um, Paul the Apostle who writes a lot of the New Testament, listen to what he says about this. Listen to how he describes Jesus Christ as the Messiah. This is Paul, this is Romans 1, literally Romans 1, chapter 1. It says, did I just say Romans 1, chapter 1? Man, toughening up here, eh? (laughs) Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, scriptures that are breathed out by God, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the Holy Spirit. The message of the gospel is standing in front of whatever heart commitments that we make, whatever beliefs that we hold on to. And and this is how we can start applying this. We can even ask the question here, if David, king, greatest nation to ever live bowed his crown at the feet of this Lord, what should our response be to that? Let's go guys, let's go. But that's the question that this passage is posing here for us. If Jesus Christ is Lord, what should our response be to him? 
we all, as I've been saying the whole time, that we all have these hearts and places. We, we are all bombarded by many idols, many desires, thoughts, feelings, emotions that draw us away, calling us to be devoted there. There are many demigods that we are easily so given into. I remember when I came to faith as a rugby player, this is like way back when. No, I'm joking. This is like 20 plus. Um, When I came to faith, I was wrestling with the idea of what it means to leave rugby and follow God. And I was just, I was just, like I was just really confronted by the idea that this this thing that I've devoted my life to since I was 15 years old, in and out of the gym, twice a day, two hours a day. I remember I used to start telling my mom how many calories she's putting in my meals, and then she used to stop. My mom was, like, my mom is the most patient person ever. Like, till today, I always reflected how patient my mom was with me when I was like, Mom, I'm going to make it. You need to stop doing this. I literally shaped and moved everything in my world to make sure that I served this one thing that I put all my hope in, believing that this would be my redemption. I would say things like, Mom, don't worry. One day I'm going to buy you a house. I devoted myself to this game. I often say to my friends, I loved rugby so much I hate it. And And it wasn't rugby. It was what I believed I would get out of rugby. We all have things that draw our hearts further and further and attempt us to move further and further away from the truth that has been revealed here to us. All of us face this in our marriages, in our singleness, in our jobs. All of us face this in the teams that we support. We all face this. And the message of the gospel comes and confronts us and says there is only one God. If David bows his crown at the feet of this Messiah, who everyone says he he is the father of, what's our response? And this is significant in light of what we go, in light of the next part of the passage that we go into. For this point, beware. In the Bible here, if you have your Bible like mine, please don't lose. It says, beware. So the point is, beware. In, in verse 38, it says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. The scribes who built their reputation on understanding and knowing the truths of the Bible, teaching and enforcing the law. He says, Beware of the scribes. Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't say, beware of their teaching. And it's the same in the other accounts. He says, no. Like, listen to what they teach, but don't, don't follow their lives. But the warning here, and the scribes, mind you, the scribes are right there. The warning here is beware of these guys. He's warning them about the fruit that has come out in the life that these guys who claim to be devoted to God. 
and it leaks out that the things that we are devoted to, the way they leak out, the way they become expressed, everything will show itself to be either in line with God or not. And so for these scribes here, listen to what Jesus says. He says, beware of these scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. One thing I didn't mention earlier when I was talking about the scribes is how revered they were in society. These guys would walk around like in long robes and you could see them. I was, I, I was, trying to, I was thinking about what could be a good analogy for this, and I, I, I'm sorry to this, but like I always, always think of the flashy parts. I mean, I used to go to a church like this, but you get this part where you've got a throng of cars that's driving behind him as he's going in there, and he's, he wants to make sure that you know that this guy is the pastor. And his title is man of God, prophet, you know, the anointed one, the major. And I, was just, and I just couldn't find a good example to try and, and do this. But this is kind of where these, the Pharisees fit in here a little bit. And these guys, they, they cared more about looking devout than being devout. I mean, as a rugby player, I used to see a lot of these guys. They play for pirates a lot. These guys who pretend to look like rugby players, but they're not. They'll wear their shorts to the mall and, you know, wear the tightest jeans and they call themselves rugby players just because they gym a couple of hours a day. And it's kind, of, it's kind of like that. These guys who are so devoted and yet live hypocritical lives. Listen to what like, Jesus is literally quite, they're more concerned about the clothes that they wear. They enjoy being recognized in public more than actually being devout to the God that they claim to know and praise and worship. They care more about honor and public opinion. Man, they exploit the vulnerable. That's one thing about an idol that I, that, that I was taken aback by. Man. They exploit they devour widows' houses. I think Dave is going to touch on this next week a little bit, but their teaching pushed people to live in, in such a heavy-laden way that they themselves can't do it. That's how much pressure they put on people. They, they, they literally taught in such a way that literally condemned people to do things. And when you think of being a widow back then, I mean, you were like the most, you're one of the most isolated person around. Widows were carrying these burdens that were being taught by this guy, by these guys, to the point where they give all the way to the point where they, they end up homeless. That's the pressure that these guys put on people. That's what the leaders of the society looked like. They were, their call for devotion to God wasn't the same call that the gospel is calling us. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't cause us to sacrifice ourselves, man. On the altar where we're supposed to die for living the lives that we've lived, Jesus Christ goes in there and he lays himself down. 
gospel that tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord also tells us that this Lord laid his life down for our sake. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. If you're wrestling with the gospel that is standing and opposing whatever belief, whatever heart commitment you've made, I want to tell you, that's, this is the good news of the gospel is that the one who's calling you to worship has already done it for you. He's calling you to worship and rejoice. The work is finished. You can, you can let go of all these things. In your marriage, man, this is such a wrestle for me. I love my wife. We celebrated our anniversary last week. I'm not really wordy. The only way I can express how much I love Olivia is just by those words, I love you. And I always have to remind her that those words are so deep and so weighty. And when I look at the gospel and Jesus Christ says, I love you more than that. And he reminds me that even my wife is a gift from him. And he calls me to worship him. That's the, that's the gospel. It's not weighed down to the point where we have to give all of ourselves just to try and appease something. No, the appeasement is done. We don't have to live double lives pretending to have it all together. No, he's got it all together. We don't have to try and look good. We don't have to try and pursue the career. We don't have to try and pursue the looks of being a good family. No, no, no. We have a family in Him. That's the message of the gospel. I'd remind you that this passage is a warning. To those who practice their religion for all show, like these guys, the promise in the passage is that they have the greater condemnation. The message of the gospel wants to set us free from that. What we think and what we believe about Jesus Christ has eternal ramifications. That he is Lord, you are free. You can let go of whatever thing that you feel like you need to hold on to. I always tell my friends that, yeah, I miss rugby. I miss, I miss it every day. I love playing rugby. But when I look back at how God has been so gracious in my life, I rejoice. And man, I can tell you stories. It hasn't been the easiest. I rejoice that this way was God's way for me. And I'm so thankful that this is what he has for me. It's not easy. I was uh, texted the guys last night and I said, and preparing this preach has been a difficult has been just a difficult thing. They've been praying with me, praying for me. I'm so thankful for you guys. But I was reminded as we were praying this morning with Dave that in all things that we do, those who trust in the Lord, Jesus Christ calls us always to depend and to trust in Him because of what He's done. He is the God King who killed Himself that we might one day wouldn't face this great condemnation. 
our Father in heaven. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, oh God, you are one. There is none like you. Apart from you, God, we have no good thing. God, guard us and keep us from all these other things that we are so conditioned to give ourselves. I pray that you be with us here at Harvest. And you would teach us all, as individuals and as a community, what it means, what it looks like to know what our crowns, the crowns of our lives that's laid down in Jesus Christ, that Jesus, you are our God. thank you. We thank you for the truth and the message of the gospel and how it sets us free. We can literally evaluate all the things we've given ourselves to and we can recognize that it's only in the gospel that the God King comes and dies the perfect death that we were meant to die. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name.